You're listening to Three Makes Baby, a podcast about fertility, family, and genetics. I'm Jana Repnow, a fertility counselor and author of Three Makes Baby. Welcome to the show. So, hi, I am here today with Liz, and I'm really excited to talk to you today about your experience and just want to hear more about you. Can you tell me a little bit about yourself? Sure. Thanks for having me on here. I really appreciate it. So my donor egg journey started when I was 27. Um, my husband and I decided to start a family. And I had some history of uh, ovarian cysts. So I assumed that I might run into some trouble. We weren't exactly sure what. I kind of always thought like, well, if I have trouble, we'll just do IVF and then we'll have a baby that way and we'll be fine. So after about six months, they started testing me because I hadn't gotten pregnant yet. And since I had this prior problem, they were willing to test me early. And they said that my egg reserve was low. Okay. So you had ovarian cysts and a low egg reserve, or were they correlated? They were correlated. So I had ovarian cysts when I was 16, and they I had one on each ovary, and together they weighed five pounds. They were giant. Wow. That is big. They had to surgically remove them and then they grew back twice. So that was two more surgeries. And so my Mm. ovaries were just super beat up. They were just, they were thrown in the towel. Yeah. So at that point they said, you know, we can, you're still young. So we'll try IVF and we'll see if it works. And it it didn't. Uh, They had to cancel my cycle because I only had uh, three eggs mature to a retrievable size. And they just said they didn't think it was enough to be worth going through with with the retrieval. And then they said, if I were to try again, they said my chance of success was less than 10%. And I should consider donor eggs at that point. Okay. And this was your fertility doctor that told you this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we were seeing okay. um, a, a reproductive endocrinologist at our local hospital. Okay, and so at this point, you're you're still young. You're thinking, I have to use an egg donor. Was that something that you would thought would be a possibility when you were first, you know, knew about the ovarian cysts, or was this a surprise to you when you were told that? It was a surprise. I guess I was kind of naive, like a lot of us are, when we find out we have fertility issues. I always thought I would just do IVF and it was it would work. IVF supposed to work. So when I did IVF and it just failed miserably, I was kind of thrown back, like, oh, so this isn't that easy after all. You know, I thought, you know, you just when you don't know about fertility and you think about IVF, you're like, okay, you just do IVF and then you get pregnant and that's it. But there's mm-hmm. there's so much more to it than that, and I've learned all that very quickly. Yeah, yeah, and so. You know that must have been overwhelming to get that information. Did the doctor when he when he or she shared it with you? Did did they let you down in a way that was sensitive to your emotions, or was it? You know, oftentimes I hear from women and men that the doctor just kind of drops it on them, and and maybe there's no better way to do it, but that that can be really hard to just be told they need to use a donor and then sort of like okay, go on with your day. Um, that a lot of people say they could use some somebody to talk to after that. Yeah, you know, I don't think the emotional support was necessarily there. It was in, you know, what they call a WTF appointment, you know, where they're like, okay, this failed, what can we do now? And I went into it thinking, 
oh, they're going to change up my meds. They're going to do something different. And then it's going to work if we do it again. But then, yeah, they said, you know, it's a less than 10% chance if we do this again. I don't think changing meds or anything is going to work. Donor eggs is the way to go. And they kind of just were like, we're going to let you sit with this for a while and think about it. And you let us know if that's what you want to pursue. And they weren't willing to do another treatment with your own eggs or try another one. They were willing, but they they just said, you know, the chances of it working were super slim. So if you, they wanted me to go into it knowing that my best bet was donor eggs, but they were willing to try again if I wanted to. And at that point, I eventually, when, you know, when I sat and thought with, about it for a while, I did decide, you know, what is the end goal here? It's, it's a baby. And while it would be nice, obviously, to be able to pass my genetics onto a, a child, that's not the end goal. The end goal is just to be parent. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And so tell me then about what happened after that and the next steps. So our clinic has a pretty small donor program. So we had to sit on a wait list for a few months. And eventually they offered us a match on a donor and it was an anonymous donor. And I really liked her profile. I thought she seemed like she fit me very well. They didn't give us any photos at this clinic. So it's just kind of up to my imagination what she looked like. But okay, it felt almost like kismet. Like it just felt like very meant to be. So I was very, you know, and it kind of reinvigorated my excitement. And because I had kind of lost hope, you know, when you're told your eggs are bad, you can't have your own child. When when we started the egg donor process and started like we picked our donor and things were rolling, we started feeling hopeful again. And that was, you know, it was nice to feel like that for once. Yeah. And did you have any other options outside of your, the clinic? Did they, for example, give you names of agencies that you could use to do a donation? They did not. Our only options working through them were to do a fresh donor from their donor pool or we could also buy frozen eggs from, I think they use my egg bank. We wanted to do the fresh cycle because we wanted as many embryos as we could get because we were hoping to possibly have more than one child. So, yeah. Okay. So, you did, they wanted you to go through their clinic. And so, you had to wait to use their clinic. And was the donor, do you know if their donor was a patient of theirs as well? They, I don't believe she was a patient. They had their own like donor recruitment that they did. So they did, they said she was at least from the tri-state area. We live in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So we're kind of in the corner of the state. So they're like, she could be from, your donor could be from Ohio or West Virginia or New York, but it's usually pretty local because they have to drive for their testing and everything. So we, I don't think she was a patient, but she was recruited to for do um, egg donation. Okay. Okay. And what, how do you feel about that? I felt fine. I mean, a lot of what I read about egg donors, it does seem, you know, you always think about, I didn't, I wanted a young donor, obviously, but I didn't want someone too young because I wanted to, you want to make sure that the woman who's giving you her eggs knows what she's doing and wants to do it for the right reasons. You don't want to feel like you're taking advantage of somebody. And I believe our donor, she was 24 and married and she just didn't want children so that kind of I don't know to me that that a little better than maybe you know a 19 20 year old still in college doesn't know what she wants to do with her life and you wonder I don't know I want you sometimes I wondered at least yeah does she know what she's being into 
Yeah, absolutely. And do you know if she was did a psychological evaluation and was counseled about donation? Does the clinic require their donors to go through, you know, a counseling session so they know they're ready and prepared to donate? Yeah, so all of the donors do a psych eval and all the recipients also do a psych eval. Okay. Yeah, and so so you so tell me what happened next. So then you they were able to find a donor for you. Did they give you a phone call? How did that work when they you got off the wait list, basically? How did that work? They emailed me a packet, which was like her profile, um, that she had filled out at answering all kinds of questions about her background, her personal life, um, her family history, things like that. Okay. And we got to review that and we just were to give our yes or no if we wanted to proceed with her. And we decided to because we thought it seemed like a really good match. She... Um, was a first-time donor, so that was something that was a little bit of a gamble, but her preliminary testing all was fine, so they thought she would do well. Yeah. And then you also know, at least now, she, that your child wouldn't have any existing half-siblings out there if she's a first-time donor. Yeah. Yeah. So then they emailed you a packet. Did, they, did you just, when you saw that in your email, in your inbox, were you surprised? Were you like excited? Did you think, oh, wow, here's the news we've been waiting for? You know, how did that, how did you feel that day? I was super excited because I'd been kind of like, you know, I check in every couple of weeks um, with the co- coordinator to see like, hey, where am I in line? How's it looking? What's happening? So she's like, oh, I think I have a match for you. I'll be sending to you soon. I think you're really going to like her. And so it was kind of, when I saw it in my email, it was like, super excited. It felt like Christmas morning. I was like, this is it. This is finally happening. I was, I was just so enthusiastic and excited. Yeah. And it gave you that hope again. And then, and then what happened? So then did you have to, they say, come on in. We've just, once you decide, come in, let's make an appointment. And what's the next step after that? So then it was figuring out the timing of everything. It was kind of tricky because it was around um, the Thanksgiving holiday. And I believe she was a graduate student at the time. So we had to coordinate with her schedule, what could work. And we ended up doing, we did a retrieval. I believe it was like right before Thanksgiving, right before, so she could get it done before her finals and everything. And we ended up doing a frozen embryo transfer because I had an issue with my lining. So in January, we did the FET and it worked the first transfer. And then we had three embryos frozen. Okay. So... That was this past January? This was January 2017. Yes. Okay, gotcha. 2017. And so it worked and the first time. And you tell me then, does that mean that you have a little one? Well, unfortunately, we lost our daughter, Violet, at 21 weeks. In, in utero? Yes. 21 weeks in pregnancy, we lost her. Oh, um. So, oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, it was definitely devastating. It just felt like, I don't know, like we finally felt like we made it. And, you know, everyone says once you get past 13 weeks, you're golden. It's fine. Everything's fine. And then mm-hmm. we just felt like we were getting the short stick of all the statistics at this point, you know, yeah. the infertility, the donor eggs, the baby loss. It was tough. Yeah. It was a tough year. The whole year was really tough. It's so tough. It's like, you're getting those losses that you're experiencing loss after loss. I mean, losing the ability to use your own eggs is a loss. And, and then when you even a failed procedure, and then you get to, you get 
a positive pregnancy and you get so far along, 21 weeks, it's devastating the grief that that comes with all of that. It's not just one incident, it's multiple incidences. And it's, you know, we've talked about it, that it's compounded grief and complex grief. So it's not, you know, it's not something that a lot of people understand or have experience with. And so it, it makes it harder for people to understand. Yeah, it was definitely. Have you experienced that grief? Oh, the grief was terrible. I, I took a, a month off of work just to, you know, recover physically and emotionally. And I feel like I was kind of, she died in June and I was in a fog pretty much the rest of that year. Really, I was in a fog until we got pregnant with our son and Ziggy, who we have now. Yeah. Okay. And tell me about that. When did you get pregnant with Ziggy? So with Violet, we had, with her cycle, we had um, three embryos left over. Uh, We transferred all of those Mm -hmm. in two different transfers and none of them took. And that was kind of another grieving point for me because they were genetically related to Violet. And that was my only chance. I felt like that was my mm, only yeah. chance. Since we used the donor, that was my only chance to kind of get a glimpse of what maybe she would have been like. These are going to be her full-blooded siblings. So there was like this weird second gen- morning of my genetics and her genetics and like having to move on from that. And that was super tough. Wow. Yeah. So you're, that's an interesting way to say it. It's so true that you're mourning her genetics now. Yeah. Even though they weren't connected directly to you, it was still, it was a huge loss for you because you had developed a bond and attachment and a love for her already and who she was. Yeah. I mean, my poor pregnancy with her, I really seldom thought about the fact that she was conceived using a donor. She was just my daughter through and through. She was my baby. Mm -hmm. And those other embryos were, you know, her potential siblings and... It just like mm-hmm. that whole dream of her and what we thought our future was going to be, was just, it was just all dashed again. It was all gone. That must have been a really hard time. Yeah. So at that point, we we were going, we you know, we had to think of next steps and, you know, we toyed around with adoption for a while. And eventually we just decided we were going to try one more time and to go to a clinic that we know had a really good donor pool and really high success rates. We were like, if we're going to do this one more time, let's go all in and give it our best chance so that we know if we have to close this chapter, we know we gave it our all. So then you didn't go back through the clinic's program, donor program. Right. So we ended up going to Advanced Fertility Center of Chicago, which is about a seven, eight hour drive from our home. Wow. Yeah, that's a long drive. And they have um, a much larger donor program and really amazing success rates. And I had met other women on Instagram that had used them, one of which was actually used the exact same donor as me. So our our kids are genetically related, which is a really cool and interesting thing that I think a lot of people that use egg donors don't necessarily know or have. They know there are potentially siblings out there, but they don't know who they are. Yeah. So you're friends with her? The other mom? Yeah. Yeah, we've, we're, we're Instagram friends. Yeah, she doesn't live anywhere near me. She, I think she lives in the South now. She moves around. But um, yeah, she has a son and she's expecting a second son from the same donor that I used for Ziggy. So it's like this really cool like relationship that we have, that we know each other and our sons have this thing in common. And do they know each other? Have they met each other as well? 
No, her son um, just turned two. But he's only seven months. Okay. We never really talked about meeting some days down the road, but it's something I would definitely be open to, especially if the D found interest in it. But I would definitely, I definitely want to keep a relationship with her just so we have that and our kids have that. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. That's great that you're in contact and great that you're open with each other and um, that your kids might be able to know each other right from the beginning. Mm-hmm. That's that's really special. So, and tell me, let's back up and talk about Ziggy and you when you went through this center in Chicago. And did they have their own donor in house program as well, or did they use a, a bank or an agency? So they do everything in house. They have their own donor program where they recruit. I don't know if recruiting is even the right word, but they find donors. Um, then they have an online database that they give you a login for and you can just basically search for specific criteria. Like if you really wanted to have a donor with blue eyes or blonde hair, or if you were African-American or Asian, you know, you could search for all these specific criteria and you can see what donors would come up. They had donors that were available for fresh cycles. And they also had donors that they deemed as, I guess, more popular that they had frozen eggs for. So you could also buy frozen eggs from specific donors, if you like that um, route. But yeah, they had it. It was pages upon pages of donors. So it was a completely different experience from our first clinic where they're like, here's one donor. Do you like her or not? It was like, there was, there's options. There's a lot more. We, we were more involved in the selection process. Yeah. Yeah. And that helps to have more options. Did you find that selection process to be kind of hard too, though? Because those options are good on one hand and then on the other hand, it there's more decisions to make? Yeah, I think it, it was a little difficult. Um, our first clinic, they didn't show us photos. at In the clinic in Chicago, they did let us see photos. We saw adult photos and childhood photos. So I thought that was, I don't know, then you're comparing yourself even more to these donors, especially seeing the adult photos. You know, it's one thing comparing yourself to like photos of a child. You're like, oh, that kid kind of looks like me when I was a kid or looks like they could be my kid. But when you're seeing an adult woman, you're like, oh, she doesn't look anything like me. Like I, it just, it was like hard to see these adult women that I would be using their eggs. But eventually I decided to prioritize a proven donor because like I said, we really wanted to like put our best effort forward and we wanted to have our best chance. So we, we I prioritized um, a donor being proven over most of the physical traits because in the long run, I knew that stuff doesn't, to me at least, it didn't really matter that much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And especially after what you'd been through, you know, to experience a miscarriage and to have that loss and to know that, you know, this could happen again. It's you, I'm sure you wanted to avoid that at all, if at all possible in any way that you thought you could, you know, it's just really difficult. Women have been through a miscarriage to the idea of it happening again can be paralyzing for them. It can be really terrifying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, especially since I was so late in the pregnancy, it was, I didn't feel comfortable with my pregnancy with Ziggy until I got past that point, which was already like halfway through my pregnancy. So I spent a long, a long time in a very uncomfortable, nervous spot. Yeah, for sure. With Violet, did she, did, did her heart just stop beating or did they have any reason that they could find that, that she did not thrive? 
So she had a heart defect. She had, she um, yeah, it's called HLHS, uh, hypoplastic left heart syndrome, where essentially she only had half of a heart. Okay. And that, and that was the diagnosis that um, she died from. Is that a syndrome they can test for genetically or no? No, they do believe there is some research that suggests it can be like an inherited genetic trait, but it's still very new research. They're not really, there's nothing concrete about it yet. So yeah, and there's no test for it. So even if we had PGS tested our embryos, there was no way they could have found it or told us that this was a concern. Okay. Yeah. And that's just so devastating. And, you know, you want to try to rule out all those possible genetic defects by, with the, the testing. But yeah, I think this brings up such a good point that there are so many things and I hear stories all the time that can't be tested for. And so, um, yeah, this is just one of those really difficult situations that, that parents go through during this process. So yeah, having a proven donor in a way I'm sure made you feel like, well, we know that, that we know that there's at least a little bit, a slightly bit more confidence in the ability that the baby's going to be born healthy and without any defects that we can't test for. So yeah, that, that definitely makes sense. And so you went with that donor and then you finally decided on, on that donor and, and then what happened? And then were you, do you know how many times she donated? First of all, I know that she donated at least twice before me and I don't believe she donated after me. And any, any, do you know how many live births? That I'm not sure. I'm only, I only know two. I know at least two from the woman I, I know I met um, through Instagram that used the same donor. Um, but other than that, I'm not sure. Okay. And then do you know if she, and you don't know that she's continued to donate, does the clinic, will the clinic allow you to receive updates from her, like health updates or anything like that over the years? Um, they never actually mentioned anything like that to me. I know I did send them a picture of Ziggy and I said, uh, I would love to share this with our donor. I'm so thankful for her. And they said they reached out to her to after she wanted to see the photo and she never responded. So she seems like she kind of fell off the grid. Yeah. And do you know if they are keeping, so I guess they're not going to be able to keep track of her if she just isn't responding, then there's no way to really have a connection to her, at least have information at some point, should you need it down the line, um, you would have to go through them, it sounds like, and they're saying she's not responding. So that's kind of unfortunate because then it's a little bit of a dead end. Was she? Did she sign up as what we formally would call anonymous, although we know donors can't really be anonymous anymore. Did she sign up as, as that to be an anonymous donor or closed donor? She did sign up. All their donors are anonymous. I did inquire about having some kind of communication with her, and they said they could pursue that, but there'd be like all kinds of like legal hurdles. We'd have to go through like signing like I don't know, kinds of paperwork and forms since the original agreement was to be anonymous. I mean, but I do have adult pictures of her, which is like you know, how anonymous can you really be if I know yeah what you look like and who you know and have all these details about you and stuff. But yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I know that there has been some information out there about contacting a donor. And there's a few court cases that they talked about that where 
a donor, I think a mom reached out for health reasons and then the donor didn't want to be contacted. And I can't remember the results of that court case. And then I know that some agencies will tell you and doctors will tell you that you can't have contact because of the contract. But I also know that Wendy Kramer says that there is nothing in the contract that that prohibits your child from getting that information either. And so this there's the legalities of it all is kind of confusing. And I know it's really confusing for people out there and because there's lots of misinformation and clinics saying different things. And so, and there's no established law around this yet. And so in the future, I believe that that we'll have more established law where the child has the right to that information. Mm -hmm. Um, possibly at at 18. I think California just passed, kind of took a baby step in that direction, a really, really tiny baby step. And so that's kind of what I think maybe the future is going to look like. And I know that a lot of times clinics and agencies will really tell parents like, you really can't reach out. It's legal. You'll be in legal trouble. But I think Wendy's Kramer's point is that you're not going to get in legal trouble for it necessarily, but that you know, that is definitely something that they want to discourage because they, they be, believe that anonymous, the more anonymous it is, the more people are willing to do it. And if you make it less anonymous, that people might be less willing to donate. So you know, I think that there's, there's kind of that's part of that, that thinking or the thought process. So, you know, it, it's interesting to me to hear stories though, as I, I'm really a parent advocate and I'm a child advocate. So I, I think about your child and I think about your needs to have that information should you need it at some point and that how that, you know, could become important and relevant to you. Also, there's DNA testing, there's genetic testing now that we can do that will be helpful in understanding some of our genetic makeup. So then you may have a less of a, at least need for health reasons to contact a donor, Um, but your child might be curious about the donor. And so if she's dropped off the earth and, and your child is really curious about her, yeah, that makes it harder to have any kind of contact with her should you want that. Is that something you would even be open to is having contact with her? I would, I mean, I, I would love to. I think for Ziggy, it would be, you know, the best case scenario, whether he was interested in um, pursuing that avenue or not. And But if I had that available to him, you know, if he wanted it, that would be fantastic. Because I want his upbringing is, I mean, it's more common than most people probably realize, but him, I'm sure he's going to feel, you know, very unique in that sense. Like not many people are conceived via donor eggs or sperm or embryos or whatever you might choose. So if he could, any way I can normalize it or show him where he came from, the more information, the better, I believe. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And so the clinic told you that you would have to do a lot of legal things in order to be in contact. What you'd have to sign some contracts. Is that what they told you? I yeah. They said there would just be a lot of paperwork and co- like they would just have to like redo a lot of things. Or yeah, since the original contract was anonymous agreement, um, I didn't really um, push it much further. I, I guess I could have. I just wanted to kind of put feelers out just to see what they would say. So, you know, at some point down the road, probably before he gets too old, I may pursue that again just to see like, okay, well, what are the steps that I do need to take if I do want to do this? Because, you know, I do think it is something that's important for Ziggy to have access to. And I don't necessarily think like 
she needs to have some kind of relationship with him or be 100% available to him. But even if it's just like, hey, when he's 18, if he wants to talk to you and has just questions, like, you know, just we can reach out and just have that connection and be like, okay, now I get it. I see where this, I know who this woman is, what she did and why she did it. And, you know, maybe it can bring him some peace or understanding. I just, you know, whatever I can pull together for him, whatever he might need or want, I want to be able to provide it to him. So he's comfortable and okay with his story. Yeah. It's just this, my mind is, is like racing right now because I just am, there's so many things going through my mind. I, I kind of almost don't know where to start. One is you probably have heard some agencies um, have told donor uh, recipient parents that they their donor isn't open for contact when they actually were open for contact. And so the, some donors and agencies, donor agencies act as like almost like a gatekeeper that keep the two parties away from each other. And that it's hard to know, you know, who's doing that, who's not doing that, you know, and out there with all the different clinics and agencies that are involved in the process. And so, you know, and I'm certainly not suggesting that, that your clinic is doing that, but that it just makes me pause to wonder about that. And, you know, how can we, you know, take the middleman out and just have this gap sort of bridge this gap between donors and parents. So there, there can be more communication. And, you know, if the donor was anonymous and like really went into this going, I want to do this, but I never, 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 never want to hear from my donor offspring ever again, then, you know, that's in my opinion, that's one of those situations where they, I would encourage that, that donor as a counselor, that maybe donation wasn't the right option for them, that maybe that just wasn't in their best interest because, you know, there's so many things we can't control about the future. And we can't really control whether someone contacts us from our past, you know, that wants to reach out and wants to to know more. I just wonder, because uh, I do think there are donors that would want to be not known and maybe not want to have contact or necessarily have a close relationship with their uh, with the parents, but that they would at least be open to to being contacted and to be able to give more information should a child need that. It seems like donors are willing to do that, and that. A lot of times they're just being kept away by agencies and, and organizations that are acting as a gatekeeper for maybe not for the best ethical reasons. Mm -hmm. Well, I was just going to say, you know, when we did our donor cycle with Violet, her donor filled out paperwork, a little, so we could like a profile. And one of the questions in the profile was, would you ever be open to having communication with the children conceived via your eggs? And she had answered that, yes, she would. She'd be open to that and that she didn't have any, she didn't feel like she mothered these children. They weren't hers. She was like, she completely understood what she was doing and that if these children needed, wanted to reach out to her, she would be completely open to it. So when I was pregnant with Violet, I inquired about that and I said, hey, you know, my donor said she was open to this can we get connected? Because I think I want to, you know, have a relationship with her. So she, my child knows who she is. And the clinic actually, they pushed back and told me just straight up. No, they said that's more of a hypothetical, not an actual, we weren't actually asking because there was an option. We were just asking to like gauge her 
mindset and how she thought about the donation process. It wasn't actually like an invitation for an open relationship. Oh, wow. That's really confusing. Yeah. I'm like, well, why are you asking her this question if we can't even, I don't know. It just, that kind of upset me because I really, I'm like, here she is saying she would be willing to talk to me and you're not going to let me find her. And at that point, I, you know, I didn't have any pictures of her or anything. I just had this very basic profile. So there was really, I didn't feel like there was any way for me to find her on my own. It was just, they, my clinic was the only way and they were just like, no, sorry, that's not an option here. Wow. I, I'm measuring my words and I probably shouldn't. And I just, I just don't, I just don't understand it. I just, and I, I mean, I do. And I think that it's the motivations for that is, are the wrong motivations. I think that there's a lot of mis, uninformed practices that are happening out there. And I think there's a lot of fear-based decisions that aren't in the best interest of the families that are raising their, their children through donor con- after donor conception. And, and I think that, you know, I, I'm such, I'm really passionate about changing this for the better and for the families and, you know, really having to advocate for you. So you have access to that information because what if that donor on the other end read the question exactly as it was worded? which is, are you open to contact? Yes, I am. And you want contact and they're not even willing to reach out to her to say this. They're keeping you away. They're keeping you apart. And the donor might be more than willing to say, yeah, I'll tell you who I am and, or I'll tell you, at least give you medical information. Maybe I don't want to share my full name, but I'll tell you some medical information and I'm happy to talk with the child at some point if you want me involved. You know, I interviewed hundreds of donors, egg donors early on in my counseling. And they, most of them were open to contact. And because as I would tell them, I would say, Hey, you know, a child may reach out to you. An adult may reach out to you someday and want to know. And you know, their response more than more often than not was, I completely get that. I definitely get why they would want to know. And I'm more than happy to be open while at the same time, I want to be completely respectful of the parents and them to know that I'm not stepping over their, their, that line, that they're the parents ultimately. So, so they were, they had this, like a lot of the donors had this very like realistic and grounded perspective. So I saw it. I interviewed donors like that. Yeah. It, it was that, I mean, to be honest, that was partly what was so appealing about her profile too, because she did seem like she wanted to be, you know, transparent and open with us or she's at least willing to uh, at some point. And that, you know, it was nice to hear that she really understood like these eggs aren't me. These are just like cells, it's just DNA. I'm gifting this to somebody so they can have a baby. Like that's a great thing to do. These aren't my children. But if they ever want to reach out and know who I am, yeah, they can reach out. But yeah, the axe was put on that really quickly when I asked about it, which is a huge disappointment. Yeah. That is a disappointment, and uh, you know I'm hearing these stories more often than I than I want to. You know, let me ask you this: Do you see it as well, like what you just mentioned? As it's just a cell, the 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 egg is just a cell. I I definitely do. I mean, obviously, I definitely mourned my genetics and you know not seeing my son and myself and my son. But I there was I just feel like when you're 
talking about something so tiny, like the size of a grain of sand, the only way that was turning into a human being was by being fed by me and being in my body and me nourishing it and growing it. So I definitely don't underestimate the impact I made on on my son and just the genetics of it are just such a small factor. It's just like the starter that you need to grow a human. And once it's going, it's, you know, it's yours. I think there was um, something I saw on the internet once that compared it to building a house. They said, you know, an architect may design the plans of the house, but if you are the one that built the house brick by brick, beam by beam, you would say that's your house. You wouldn't say it was the architect's house. You would be like, this is my house. I built this house. And that's how donor conception is. You know, might have used somebody else's plans, but you were the one that built it. Yeah. And so do you see where, so as like a, that a lot of donor conceived adults and individuals, they do see it differently than that and that they, you know, they see that like the DNA, since it's such a huge piece of who they are, you know, physically, their characteristics, their traits, their um, tastes, and the way DNA can show up in so many ways, even though it does seem like it's just, you know, maybe a cell, that is such a huge blueprint to becoming who who we are, to like our preferences, our traits, our tastes, our, you know, our tendencies, the way we talk, the way we walk. I mean, and so a lot of times, you know, the parent's perspective is that, well, you know, it's just a cell. And even the donor is like, it's just a cell. But then the child themselves is like, it's more than that. It's so much more than that because they are, it's who they become in, in a lot of ways. And of course, the parent, you as the parent and as the carrier and being pregnant with the baby has a huge say in that as well with, you know, like you said, epigenetics, you're, you know, the time that baby spends in utero, we're finding is so impactful on their life and their future. And so that's just a that's one of the benefits of being able to carry your baby is that you get to have that impact and, and how you parent them impacts them too. But then there's that huge piece where they're going to be different based on that, that blueprint, you know, that, that DNA blueprint that is, that makes them who they are too. And so sometimes I know just from being kind of the, I'm the voice that's in between and the, the donor conceived groups and their, or individuals, I should say, and parents is that I do hear that some donor-conceived individuals do not, they do, they almost take, they take offense to, to the idea of when parents say, you know, well, hey, I built this, you know, and I, or I am the, the reason that this baby came to be. Um, they feel, it makes them feel like they are a um, product and that they're, that they're not, that their kind of viewpoint isn't relevant. Even though I, I see what you're saying too, is that you know, you obviously had such a huge role in the development of the baby and, and bringing the baby to life. So, so, yeah, what are your thoughts on that just initially? Have you heard that from the donor-conceived community? Well, yeah, I definitely, you know, I completely understand that perspective. And I mean, the name of your book, Three Makes a Baby. I mean, I think that kind of <laughs> just says it there. It's, there's three people involved in the picture and they all have a very important role, and which is why I'm also, I want that transparency for Ziggy to be able to have some kind of connection with his donor, because I do, I do understand how that's definitely an important aspect of his story and his life. And a lot of the things he might, the way he might think or do and the way he, you know, he looks all that, you know, very well could come from her and just want him to know, you know, to have that understanding of himself. Yeah. I see the value in that. Definitely. 
Yeah. And th- listen, there could be some donor conceived adults that kind of aren't, don't feel as strongly about that. And then just, they think that, I mean, I, my parents are my parents and yeah, I have my DNA. Then that, that's what makes me me, but I don't necessarily feel the need to reach out to my donor or connect with my donor or know where it came from that I'm okay. So there's so many different perspectives under that whole umbrella of, of being donor conceived and so many different stories and so many different, you know, situations. So it, it's really hard to speak and say one thing, but I do know that that can be kind of a tricky area that intended parents find themselves in, especially I've seen online on Instagram, if they say things like that donor conceived individuals can really take offense to it. And so, you know, I just wonder if there's a way that we can help, you know, words can be clumsy, right? And words, words are clumsy. And I know, I know that the intentions behind what people say are often different than what's coming across. And I think that's the, the pitfalls of social media is that we fall into is that maybe we read into something and we read into it wrong or we don't know the person behind it and we don't know their heart and we don't know you know what they really intend and so we just we take one statement and we make an and people make a judgment about that and i think that's happening a lot in in this area you know don't you see that too on on social media oh yeah definitely i think especially with the when you're, you mentioned epigenetics like I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on epigenetics in any way, but I do see a lot of people like talking about how much their donor conceived children might look like them and then crediting epigenetics. And then I wonder, is that, is that how epigenetics really works? Or is it just you pick a donor that, you know, resembled you enough that your child would, would look like you, it came from you, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't know either. And, and you know, see, kind of, I, I'm one of these people that I like the facts and I like to get the actual science-based, evidence-based information. And then I also keep the door open to the stuff that we don't know yet, you know, that we haven't discovered. I mean, listen, people thought the world was flat once. So, you know, and so it, so what do, we don't know. And and so, yeah, I think, I think when it gets dangerous is when people use epigenetics solely to to remain in a place of denial about their own about their child's differences and where they they just don't want to see the differences. And so they want to just be like, hey, this is normal. This is just like every other family. And epigenetics is is my kind of my evidence I'm going to stand on. And that's that the end of story. And so yeah, so it's it is we do have to be careful about it and make sure that we're still looking at both sides of the epigenetic story that, yeah, epigenetics is fascinating and new evidence is we're finding out more and more stuff. That it doesn't take away the fact that your child will have some serious DNA traits that come out that are different and that may be a huge part of who they are. Maybe not. We don't know. You know, you can have an offspring in a biological or non-biological family where they look, they're just almost seem like a little carbon copy of one of the parents. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, more than not, it's, you don't have that, but you can have that. And then you can have, you know, a donor who donates a, gametes has an offspring out there, you know, that they don't raise, they're not parenting, they're not the parents of, that looks just like them. And then they may go on to have their own children and that, that look less like them. So, you know, that's kind of, that's one of those weird situations where it, DNA kind of plays a little trick in a way. Oh yeah. I definitely don't undervalue the genetic contribution our donor made to our son and our future offspring. Like when I look at him, I, I don't try to see myself I see Ziggy and I know he came from my husband and the donor and 
whatever traits and things came from which of them, I'll, I'll never really know. But I just, I don't want to undersell my own contribution to him. But I know it wasn't, you know, the genetics that build him up. Like, they're not, that's not me. I can't take credit for any of that. No, but you can for the, the fact that you carried him and that you're mothering him and that you're his parent and just the legacy that, that you give him with that. You know, I was in, um, in session with someone the other day and they were talking about their family tree and their legacy and the, the bloodline that went with their family legacy. And, and when we were talking about the things, there were things that were definitely genetically inherited throughout the family. And you can tell they had been passed down for quite a few generations. But then there were also things in their family that had been passed down that weren't genetics, that were more behavioral and that were patterns, ways of communicating and even dysfunctional patterns that were passed on that weren't solely attributed to genetics. And so those are family legacies too. And they're not all negative. Some are positive too. So it's not just, family is so much more complex than just DNA. you know. And so that's when people think, well, I'm not going to pass anything on to my child if he's not genetically related to me. That's not true because you definitely can and you definitely will. And your stamp so to speak, will be there forever on your child. Our interview didn't end there. Liz went on to tell me about the memory of her daughter, Violet. Um, I knew, like, the, I wanted to, you know, talk about the loss, how I valued my daughter Violet's genetics, even though she was donor-conceived, and, like, how that was. I love that. um, Another type of genetic loss for me, you know losing that, losing the rest of those embryos from her cycle, you know, that was something that was, you know, that, that's mm-hmm. important to me to remember and um, mm-hmm. to share with people, you know, like, I don't know, they might've, she might've been conceived by donor, but you know, she was my daughter and the, I don't know, it just, I think it's not, not necessarily a unique situation. I know a lot of people use multiple donors and have miscarriages and have baby loss, but it's something that I don't think a lot of people discuss. Yeah. So true. You know what? Do you think that you could find healing by connecting with your first donor and expressing to her how much you loved Violet and that that was a piece of her too and that you could carry your me- her memory on the two of you somehow? Yeah, I don't I'm if I could reach out to her, if that was a possibility to connect with her, I think that would definitely be nice. I know the clinic was very careful not to tell her that I had lost the pregnancy because I think they didn't want to spook her from donating again. Oh, no, that's not fair. She needs to know that her babies could have this genetic condition. Yeah, so I don't know if she was ever notified, but I know I, I when <sighs> I got the diagnosis, I reached out to them and was like, hey, this is happening. Can we, can you ask the donor if like, does she have a history of heart problems? I don't, that wasn't necessarily disclosed in the profile, but you know, maybe... I say this and this triggers so I'm like, oh, you know what? My grandma did have this heart defect, but, you know, because I guess, you know, studies show that all these heart defects are connect, can be connected in some way. They just manifest differently when they're combined with other genetics. And, you know, sometimes you get a really, you know, mild condition. Sometimes you get something super severe like Violet did. But they were very like, you know, we don't, mm. that's, we're not going to reach out to her about that. Well, I, and it's definitely not on your husband's side. Not that we know of, no. And, and it also might not 
sorry, might also be something that isn't necessarily in either of their histories. And it can also just be something that kind of just happens. You know, not everyone that has a heart defect has it in their family history, but there is sometimes that connection. Yeah. And it just seems like it would be such good information for the donor to know too, that this happened. I mean, this could be life-changing for her. And so, yeah, I just, I I don't know. It seems like there's an opportunity here for a connection if you can, if that's be something you would want to pursue and just to, for some healing and to, again, you, Violet, well, you'll always have Violet in your heart and to know that, you know, there might be other, Violet might have half siblings out there and maybe it'd be healing for you to be able to meet them and to know, and it may probably be very emotional and very difficult too, but there is, yeah, there's such intense grief and, and just those, those moments where we can connect with what we lost and find some peace and find some joy and find something, a silver lining, a rainbow, something that came from it, that Violet, maybe her time here was short, but that, you know, her half brothers, her half sisters are out there and you can enjoy the lives, the life that they are living and, or at least be able to see that in them. So yeah, it's definitely something I think I should maybe look into. Well, I'd be fascinating to know if you're able to find her and, and how that goes and you know, how that conversation happens. And hey, you know what? Now I'm really dreaming. Maybe we find her and we get her on the podcast and we talk about it. Wouldn't that be something? That would. That would definitely to, like, <laughs> have all, all three of us. Oh my gosh, that would be so beautiful <laughs> to carry that on in Violet's memory. Thank you so much for coming on today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. This is nice. Yeah, absolutely. Have a good one. <laughs> you too. Bye. 